And thank you, Amy. It is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford, Philip Bliss. If you do not know the history of that song, let me strongly encourage you this afternoon, go and Google those two names and that, that hymn, and you will be enriched beyond measure as you understand where those words came from. So it's good to be with you today. It's a joy to be back in the Word, and I'm glad that you're here. If you're a guest today, we're glad that you're here. Still many on vacation, trying to get the last few weeks in before the school year starts again. If you have little ones up through grade four, you can be dismissed at this time. We can give them uh, to the teachers downstairs. We'd love to have uh, you do that, or you can keep them with you if you'd like. For the rest of you, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's open your Bible there to preserve our time today. I want to just jump right into the text. It uh, will take care of itself, as we say often, no matter where you come in, in the middle of our verse-by-verse study through 1 Corinthians, you're going to go away enriched if you understand what the Word of God says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies to you, and today will be no different. It's our target, of course, to finish up this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, and it is a joyful chapter, 58 verses that have to do with the resurrection, and most of our songs today, as you may have noticed, had to do with just that, Alex is uh, leading us through that last song with the band uh, will really just completely go perfectly with this message, and so it's a joy to just let the Holy Spirit do what he wishes. But look in verse 53 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be reading from New American Standard. You can find that in a chair in front of you, or just reading your copy. I'll give you some verse cues, and we can stay together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality verse 54 but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law verse 57 but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ verse 58 therefore my beloved brethren Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Stop right there. Last week, we finished up uh, our time in the Word with looking at a few principles that the Holy Spirit wants the church to know concerning the believer's final victory at the resurrection. And as you read through the Word of God on a daily basis, understand, these are things that the Holy Spirit has carried a writer along for you to know. So they're important. So as you read through the word, understand that as you get to these principles, they are things the Lord expects you to know and to live according to that knowledge as you understand it and you apply it. These are some of those things. So I'm going to go through these because the ones we're going to do today will go together with these and you'll get that whole package and this most remarkable of sections of scripture that have to do with final victory. Resurrection principle, triumph principle number one, we're going to be transformed. In case you didn't know, you're not going to be able to get Believers cannot get to uh, that next stage with the Lord forever in the body that they have, and they're going to be different uh, to dwell in that domain. So in other words, flesh and blood as we know them, as we talked about this, can't be part of the new reality of life with the Lord. Whatever it may be, we're not sure. In fact, John says we don't know exactly what we'll be, but we know we will be like him because we'll see him as as he is. So there's there's a part of that that's still a mystery, how that new body will play out, but we know it won't be flesh and blood as we understand it. We bear the image of Adam in flesh and blood and uh, now, and then we will bear the image of Jesus' resurrected body. Resurrection triumph principle number two, which was new information for the church 
at that time and perhaps some new information for you. Not everyone is going to die before they're transformed. So Paul says, hey, listen, this, is, uh, this was a mystery that's now been revealed. Some are going to be alive when Jesus comes to get the church, and they'll be transformed on the way up. So we looked at a number of passages that deal with our understanding of the rapture as a different coming of Jesus than his glorious appearing, and we won't go back through all of that. If you'd like to see some of that research, you can go back online and look at the archive. Resurrection principle number three. The transformation from corruptible to incorruptible is instant. Now, all along, John, or, or Paul has been using uh, some examples of a seed planted, and, the, and, the, and out, of the, out of the seed comes this wonderful plant that maybe didn't even, even you couldn't have recognized what was going to come out of the seed and what came out, but the, the, the basic part of that is this. The resurrection form and the mechanics, somewhat like a seed being planted in death and a new resurrected form springing up. So, of course, Paul says, as he gives them that transformation principle number two, that everybody's going to die before they're transformed. Obviously, then, they're sitting there wondering, well, if flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, what do I do if I'm still alive when Christ comes back? And Paul made it clear, you're going to be transformed. So, obviously, the seed and plant principle can't carry through. The illustration can't carry through all the way. Again, we see in this principle number three that the reality of the believer's resurrection is that they'll be transformed, and we saw this, in the shortest conceivable amount of time, in a moment which is, it comes from the word that we get our word Adam from, so an, a, a, a portion of time that can't really be reduced anymore, the shortest portion of time that you can imagine, shortest conceivable amount of time, you're going to be transformed. Whether you're transformed from life to eternal life or from death to eternal life, that transformation is very quick. And then we saw resurrection triumph principle number four. This transformation will occur at a trumpet call. And we saw that last time. This trumpet will indicate the end of things as believers on earth know them, the end of death, the end of the church age, uh, the end of waiting for the sun from heaven, however you want to describe, as scripture describes, this coming, uh, the beginning of immortality, the beginning of victory, the beginning of the rescuing from the wrath to come. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1.10 and so on, you'll see all those ways to refer to this catching away, this trumpet call that's going to occur, and the rescuing that occurs there. And we saw it isn't the last trumpet ever that's going to be blown because scripture doesn't mention it in that way, and it's likely that believers both in the grave and still alive will, only, will be the only ones who are going to hear this trumpet anyway. And so this is a very interesting and very important principle that we saw. And then we saw resurrection triumph principle number five, which is this, uh, that transformation is like clothing the real you with the right suit. So the suit is not you. In other words, uh, look at verse 53. For this perishable, Paul says, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul's kind of wrapping up his comments and this is going to happen in that moment, in that twinkling of an eye, in the shortest amount of time. And in what's going to happen is really this, the perishable, and that's the adjective thartos. And, and here, uh, both of these adjectives have the noun supplied by you. It's body. So the noun is body. The adjective is describing this, this perishable body. And it, the way that you can understand that is this. You are really clothed in something defiled. And his illustration here is for the believer to think of their life now clothed in a filthy set of clothes that you can never take off. It's not the real you. The real you is inside, but the clothing that you're clothed with is corruption. The real you is ready for heaven. It's clothed with corruption. The nouns applied for this adjective. Paul has been talking about the bodily resurrection all along from the beginning of this section, and he's talking about the body now. And all of that is corrupted, and it'll all be transformed from death or from life because death just shows an accelerated form of what's going on in life now. So once you get to the grave, that just accelerates everything that's already going on in your body and the processes now. And so 
Paul says, listen, you're clothed in that. And so the illustration is clothing instead of a seed being planted in the ground. The illustration is clothing. You're clothed in that. This perishable body must put on the, must put on is, is uh, from the Greek verb in duo, instantly that which is filthy will be transformed into what is imperishable, atharsia, no longer able to decay. So transformed suit around you, uh, the real you will be absolutely pure, no possibility of corruption. You're changed from perishable to imperishable. And the mortal, then, he goes on with the illustration, uh, it's the Greek adjective, natos. The mortal, and again, the noun is supplied for the adjective and the word, it's the word body. So the mortal means subject or liable to death. You're clothed in a suit that's liable to death. Not only is it dying, it does the deeds of death. We saw last time. So the body, the flesh about you does the deeds of death. It does the deeds that require death. If you were not redeemed, the things that the body does are things that bring about death. And so everything that's dying, everything that's producing, uh, the actions that bring about death, this fleshly body we're clothed in, so the illustration is all about clothing, is going to be transformed. Your identity remains the same. Your raiment is transformed. So this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul brings out something of the nature of the change, singling out the cessation of corruption, the liability uh, and the liability of body decay and mortality, which is the liability of death. All those things that you are now, Paul says, these are all going to change. We currently bear the image of the earthly. Now, and now we currently wear the clothing of the mortal and the corruption, but in the shortest possible time at this transformation, neither is going to be true. On the day of the trumpet, that trumpet will sound, and the beginning of that first resurrection will have commenced. And the Holy Spirit carried Paul along so that you could know this. It's an important part of the foundation of who you are. And we're going to kind of tie that all together here in a few minutes. If you understand that you're going to be changed, if you understand that whether you're alive or you're in the grave as a believer, when that trumpet calls, you are going to be changed. And Paul wants us to know that. Now, some things are obvious here. Look at verse um, 54, if you would. We've, we've looked at the reality of verse 53. So we look at verse 54, and some of these things are obvious because they are things we've talked about. But let's read them anyway. Paul's kind of summing up. This is Paul's, how Paul does his argument. He just reaches back and just, like a fine craftsman, just pulls all these things in and makes these wonderful statements for us to kind of consume. So verse 54 says, But when this perishable would have put on the imperishable, we talked about that already, and this mortal will have put on immortality. So this is going to happen. This is as sure as if you have a fleshly body, you'll have a spiritual one. Paul said that earlier, remember? Regardless of what you may believe, what you might think about this, this is how it's going to work. He's the one, God's the one who made us. He's the one who's going to make this transformation happen. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. And we're going to focus on those last six words, death is swallowed up in victory, because we've looked at the previous ones at length. And Paul always comes back to the Word of God to really wrap up his arguments, and he does it again here. So he gives all these illustrations to help us understand what the form and the mechanics of the resurrection are going to look like and what this final victory is going to look like. Then he comes back to the Word of God, and he just kind of wraps everything up, just says, listen, it's always said this, it's always been here. And here are the passages from Isaiah. And it really is, if you've read through these, you understand this, one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. It is one of the most beautiful passages in all the scriptures with its wonderful imagery. Strictly, in context, it appears to be talking about the glorious appearing of Christ. But as we've seen before, as we look at the prophets of old, typically they didn't differentiate between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. For them, it was one fluid timeline with no breaks. But we know 
that the church age began, right? And we understand how the weeks of Daniel work out and all that kind of stuff. But they didn't understand that. And 1 John is pretty clear about that. They weren't even writing for them. They knew they were writing for someone else. And they understood it was for different times and periods. And so very, very clear here that we, we are talking about two different times. And we can see this now because future revelation from this time period in Isaiah has allowed us to see the unfolding of God's plan for his people Israel and as for his people the church. And so we understand there's a break, but for him, it's just one fluid thing from one to another. Now, Isaiah 25, 7 is a marvelous passage, beginning in verse 7, and you'll see right away uh, what I'm talking about. And on this mountain, talking about the mountain in Jerusalem, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. Now, let's pause right there. What is that, beloved? What is the shroud that's over and has been over all mankind since Adam? What is it? It's sin, but which produces the final result of death. Death is the veil that's always been over everybody, right? It is the shroud that everybody tries to avoid. It's why you go to the gym. It's why you take your vitamins. It's why, you, you know, it's, it's everything about everything you see on advertising on TV, particularly, you know, from 8 o'clock in the evening on, about how you're going to preserve your life and get out from under the veil that is death. It's over everybody. It's been over everybody since Adam, okay? So this is, this is the veil, on this mountain, he'll swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. And that shroud, that veil is death. And then he makes it very clear. Look at verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time. So using the same word, he's going to swallow it up, this, this covering, this veil, stretched over all the nations. And then he just says he's going to swallow up death for all time. So God, God swallows up what's been swallowing up, if you will, every single person who's ever lived. Right? That is the one thing that's for sure. And taxes, if you do that kind of thing. So, which we all do, don't we? Because we're all supposed to pay taxes. Romans 13, we went through all that. So you should know that. God wanted you to know that. Pay your taxes, pay your, you know, your fees. So don't try to get out of that. Okay? But here's, here's something that's been swallowing up everybody since Adam. God's going to swallow it up. And this is the passage Paul chooses to quote here as you get to the end of this final victory time in the resurrection. And he's, death has swallowed up every living person with just a very few exceptions, right? And we talked about those who were kind of the, the image or the, or the precursor for the rapture. Those who walked right out and walked right up and were with God, Elijah, um, Enoch. And so apart from that, death swallowed up everybody. So, and the Lord, it says, and the Lord God, look there if you would with me, verse 8, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will move all the reproach, of his peoples from the earth. So Israel will be the head, the most exalted of all the nations, instead of the tail and the one blamed for every bad thing. So, you know, again, not talking about the church here, talking about Israel. They're going to be moved in the preeminent place. Get that in your mind, okay, regardless of what some uh, elevated theologians think they may know about this. The fact of the matter, if God has promised it to something, something to someone, he's promised it forever, Israel's going to be moved into that spot. So that's why you understand that this is the, perhaps the glorious appearing of Christ when the, Israel is in the primary position. So it says, he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. So Israel moved into the primary spot. And then it says this, for the Lord has spoken. You see that? For the Lord has spoken. So let me ask you a question. What's the contingency plan for that? There isn't a contingency plan for that. Isn't that great? No small writing at the bottom. Okay, in case this doesn't work, here's the other option. We'll just replace it with the church or whatever. No, there's no contingency plan. The Lord has spoken. And when he's spoken, that's it. It's set. So the Lord's going to put Israel in this, in this spot, and he's going to swallow up this covering, this veil that's been over humankind since Adam. 
And then, catch this, and it will be said in that day, behold, this is so amazing. You're going to say this, as well as Israel. And I will say that. It it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. And that might is not like, hopefully he will and maybe we can slide in. But this is, we're waiting for this and now it has come. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And Paul's going to get to this Thanksgiving part in a moment here in 1 Corinthians 15. But earlier in the passage here in Isaiah 25, the prophets carried along to say this. And this is very, this is amazing. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I'll give thanks to your name, catch this, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. When was Christ slain for the forgiveness of, for the forgiveness of sins from 1 Peter? Do you remember? When was it? From the foundation of the world, right? I mean, plans planned out long ago. Does Isaiah know about that? Only by the prophecies the Lord given him. He didn't know how it was all going to work out, but he did know one thing. You're my God, I'll exalt you, I'll give thanks to your name, for you've worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. So when Paul says then, in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when this imperishable, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that's written, written, death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, what God had planned long ago, long since, and has revealed to his servant, the prophets, he will certainly fulfill. He's going to swallow up the veil that's been over mankind since Adam. He's going to swallow up death. He promised it long ago. And guess what? This is the moment that it gets fulfilled. In other words, he planned it long ago. He's revealed it to his servants. And he's going to swallow up in victory these things. Points to the complete defeat and the destruction of death. Death, it says, is swallowed up in victory. Resurrection triumph principle number six. And if you're keeping track, this can go in your notes right on the back of your bulletin. On the day of transformation, death will be proclaimed as vanquished. And that is to describe it as totally overcome and defeated. It has disappeared because it was drank down by Christ on the cross, right? I mean, the Lord already said in Isaiah 25, I'm going to swallow up death forever. This veil has been over mankind since Adam. Here's where it occurred. Christ Claim the victory. If you will, death's bell tolled already. You understand? On resurrection day, death's bell, boom, that was it. When Christ came out of the grave that we sang about just a little bit ago, in, in, both in the hymns and in, the, in our praise and worship, that was the bell. It pealed out, if, as it were, on resurrection day. But in this future day, see, Paul's talking about, death is put on display as vanquished. Did everybody know death was vanquished then? Some people did if they believed what the prophets had said, but not everybody did. People were still scared. What were the disciples doing? They were hiding from the Jews. They were worried. But in this future day, death is put on display as vanquished. Believers coming out of the grave and being transformed, believers being transformed in life, that's the proof, see? Death is swallowed up in victory. It was already swallowed up with Christ on the cross, but when this transformation comes, triumph then can be proclaimed. And that's what Paul's saying. Listen, This is the transformation day. This is the triumph day over death. Death is put on display as vanquished. Now pause for a minute. You just heard this passage. Death is swallowed up in victory. Your future transformation proclaims that to be true. Now I want you you to think about how that statement affects you right now. Do you fear death? I'm not talking about a macho answer. I'm not afraid of death. Okay. I'm, I'm not afraid of anything. 
Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about do you fear death? And perhaps not. Perhaps you really don't. You've come to, the gri to grips with this understanding. Perhaps you fear the form of death. Perhaps you fear suffering. Perhaps you feel, fear the pain that's going to come. It, you know, it's a tough thought process. I mean, if you're real about it, okay? Because even if we don't fear death itself as a believer, even if we understand thoroughly by faith all that's going to come about and that we've waited, as, as Isaiah said, Lord, you're my God, I'm going to exalt you. I'll give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness, and you have followed that whole thing out. You've traced it out from Isaiah all the way into the New Testament, and you understand absolutely this is firm. And when Paul says this is for sure, if you have a physical body, you will have a spiritual body. If you're unredeemed, you'll have a, you'll have a spiritual body fit for punishment forever, regardless of what your, your, your philosophy of life may be. And if you are a believer and you're redeemed, you will have a spiritual body fit for eternity with the Lord to enjoy him forever. These are just hard facts, regardless of what someone may believe. This is how it's going to wash out. And you may understand that, but you may still fear death. You may fear the form of death. And, and even if you don't, there's a sense in which it still has temporary authority, right? I mean, let's be real. It breaks long marriages, doesn't it? And some of you just went through that. It takes away people who are needed. So it has some dominion over us, doesn't it? It, it, it lays claim to very young. It lays claim to very old. And it can hit you with almost an unbearable blow right now. Even if you don't fear it, it still has some dominion. And although for the believer, as we've seen in 2 Corinthians 5.8, and we'll look at it more closely as we get into that, that uh, letter, we are of good courage. We understand. And I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be what? Home with the Lord. Even before the transformation of your physical body to a spiritual body, even before that's going to occur, if you, if you die, Scripture is very clear that you're going to be absent from your body here and present with the Lord waiting for your resurrected body. So you can have all that assurance, but still understand that, hey, there's a lot of dominion death still has. But at this transformation day, when that trumpet sounds, that is the beginning of the end of the dominion of death forever, see? For the unbeliever, and here's the thing, you know, even for the believer, it can break long marriages, it takes away people who are needed, lays claim to young, you know, it can hit us with an unbearable blow. But for the unbeliever, death comes and steals souls away to hell. I mean, just be clear, okay? If you pass into, into eternity without knowing Christ as your Savior, you pass into a Christless eternity forever. There's no going back and saying, oh, okay, you were right, I'm sorry, you know, my bad. Listen, the gospel has gone out. Many of you heard it over and over again, and you have not responded. Let me be clear. If you pass into a Christless eternity, you pass into eternity forever where you will never have fellowship with the Lord. You will be apart from him forever, and you will wait for a resurrected body and you'll get it, and you'll be able to experience forever separation from God and punishment. Forever. That's a long time. Should you be worried about that? You should be terrified about that. You should be terrified about that. Is that why you respond to the Lord? Self-preservation is not a bad idea as, an inter as a start, but guess what? You're going to have to respond to the gospel the way the gospel has been presented to you. You're going to have to repent and confess your sin. And ask him to forgive you. But let's be clear, okay? There's no other category here for those who had a philosophy of life that didn't line up with either of these two, okay? Just get that out of your mind, okay? That's just folly. That's just folly. So death is still an enemy. Even though we who are believers have no fear, there's, 
But there's going to come a time when the resurrection happens that we can shout, Isaiah 25, 7, he'll swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations, he'll swallow up death for all time. You're going to be able to shout that. Uh, Lord, so long ago you planned this and you performed it perfectly. This was your plan from the beginning. And now I get to see this. See, you may be alive when the trumpet sounds and you're transformed instantly right after those who are in the grave are transformed. And you'll be able to shout that and it'll come back to your mind. What a joy that is. See, and beloved, when you say that, he'll swallow up death for all time forever. Understand, there will never be a time ever again where death will ever have any dominion over you. And in a very short time, death will never have any dominion over anyone. And here's the thing, and I want you to just get the, the scope of what we're talking about, okay? As a footnote, I th and this is super exciting to think about, okay? The defeat of death, the catch this, beloved, stay with me, doesn't just stop death from doing any further damage, okay? You know, like getting sandbags during a flood. You know, you've already, some of your house is ruined, and like you're laying up sandbags, and you're pumping it out. And stuff is already ruined, but nothing else is going to get ruined, right? It's not that, okay? For the believer... Everything that was ever ruined by death is reversed. Do you understand that? Do you understand how marvelous that is? All the, all the marriages that were shortened because you didn't get to keep that spouse, all the little ones who went home to be with the Lord before they could ever see the light of day, all of the sorrow and all of that for every believer forever is reversed. You get to be rejoined with those people and all of that's given back. See? You understand? That is a marvelous thing to think about, see? It's not just the end of the damage while there's still damage. For the believer, it's all reversed, see? All of the apparent victories of death are turned into defeats, and all the defeats caused by death on those who are Christ are turned into victories. Not just right now, forever you can celebrate them, see? Everything that was missed, everything that was broken, everything taken away, everything that was unbearable becomes the sweetest of victories forever. And all of eternity is before us to celebrate those things and catch up and finish and have more and everything that comes into our minds at a loss. And all the time we can say, oh Lord, you're my God, I'll exalt you. I'll give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans for him long ago in perfect faithfulness. And that's enough to get you motivated, beloved. I, I'm, I gotta tell you, as I went through the passage again this week and just kept you know, thinking about it, I just kept thinking, wow, I mean, it's not just victory like now, like we're saving, there's, there's still ruined stuff, but at least there's nothing else ruined. It's like everything's getting reversed, see. And here's the thing, now let's go to the other side. That's a terrible thing to think about as an unbeliever. All of that available to you and you by rejecting Christ, you'll miss that. And as an unbeliever in the tribulation period, and later to be born during the millennial reign of Christ and to reject him because death has been put to death. And eventually, beloved, that will apply to everybody. Every unbeliever will receive a body that will never die. And from that time on, you will experience hell, which is a living death forever. And you'll never be able to die. And you'll never be able to be free of it. See? And that's going to apply to everybody, see? All will be resurrected with a body that can no longer die, and the unredeemed will live in that body for eternity in torment. But for the believer, see, and this is Paul's focus here, the words quoted by Paul from Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death for all time, has such a wonder about it. And as you think about how big it really is, it causes Paul to sneer at death in the next verse. Look there, if you would, in verse 55. Paul sneers at death, okay? And we say it in such a way 
that it doesn't sound like a sneer, but it really is. It's like a rhetorical question. So, what's up with all the power you had? Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Now, death in both sentences is the form of the noun thanatos. The word grave isn't in the original. Okay, so grave is not there. If you have the NIV, it says, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, grave, where's your sting? It doesn't say grave in the original. It's death both places. Okay? But in the passage in Hosea where Paul is quoting, it does say, it does say grave and death. Now, as Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, this is, a, this is another um, amazing passage. And here, the Lord's speaking through the prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And it, it, they've been led into idolatry and led the, the nation into idolatry. And although the Lord has the power to do these things, he indicates he's not going to do them on behalf of an idolatrous people. So he says this, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? That's Sheol is the word for grave. In the Old Testament, shall I ransom them from the power of the grave, of the pit, where you go? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where's your sting? In other words, if the Lord desired to, for Israel, he could take away the power of the grave and of death, if he wanted to. Shall I do it, he says? But instead, his people would be consumed by both, so he says, compassion will be hidden from my sight. So he's saying, listen, I could take you away from the power of the grave, I could take you away from the power of death, but I'm not going to because you're just idolatrous and I'm going to let both have claim on you. But in the future, see, at the beginning of the first resurrection, at the transformation where Paul is talking about it, and he's using this passage, death will have no victory, and every victory that has had temporary authority will be reversed for the believer. And then he ridicules death again, and he says, where's your sting? So death, where is your victory? You don't have one. Death wears your sting, and sting is the noun kentron. It has to do with the fang of a snake or the sting of a bee or something like that where an insect would, would sc or scorpion or something would, would bite you and, and could cause a lot of pain, leads to death. But in the future, see, at the beginning of the first resurrection, at the transformation, the stinger of death has been removed. Now catch this, okay, and again, as a footnote, the stinger was really plunged into whom? Into Christ, right? He took the stinger of death at the cross, he submitted to the apparent victory of death at the cross. So death has no more sting, and it doesn't have any victory because he rose from the dead. Both were powerless over him. So resurrection principle number seven. Let's copy that down. Death was a malicious adversary. We understand that. It still has dominion now. Torturing people, conquering people. But Christ has drawn its sting and conquered it, and it's powerless and harmless to those who are in him. I'll just leave that there for a minute. It's a little long, but it's important to understand how that works, see? One of the ways that we praise the Lord on Resurrection Sunday is because he took the sting of death. It got plunged into him, and it was powerless over him. As he came out of the grave, the stinger of death was rendered powerless. Now, Paul wants to make sure that the church understands this ridicule that Paul levels at death. And by the way, we just sang these words in Alex's last song. So, on top of the other wonderful principles now that Paul has given the church uh, that makes him so confident uh, in the resurrection of Christ and his power to save, he explains this simple sentence. So he says this, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. See that in verse 56? Look, at your, look there in your copy of God's word. I'll leave this just for a second more. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. Now, you wouldn't know this by watching Hollywood, or watching Washington. 
but moral issues are serious issues. The same God who set the physical laws of the universe into place also set the moral laws of the universe into place. And if you violate the physical laws of the universe, there are consequences. So it follows, if you violate the moral laws of the universe, there are consequences. If you violate the physical laws, there's going to be consequences. Okay? Gravity's going to work whether you believe in it or not. Okay? If you get up on the edge of a building and you slip, you violated the physical law and you are on your way down and you're in trouble. Okay? And you build a bridge that won't hold the weight of cars going over there and you, you understand the physical laws and how they work on each other and you start putting cars over there, it's going to fall. It's going to collapse. Listen, physical laws have consequences if you break them. Moral laws, the same lawgiver gave the physical laws, gave the moral laws, and so it follows that there are consequences for moral laws violation. And you wouldn't know that by watching Hollywood. You wouldn't know that by watching most movies. You wouldn't know that by watching Washington. And they operate as if there's no moral consequence for what they do. But the bottom line is this, and, and people that you know, and people in my own family, they operate with you know, violating one moral law after another as if there's no consequence ever. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, God made both. There's consequences for both. Now, if you think about it, it's really not death itself that's harmful, okay? It's the sting of death that's harmful, correct? So let's think through this. You know, death, or simply moving out of this life into the immediate presence of the Lord, is considered gain, not loss, right? According to Paul in Philippians 1, 21 through 23. So, you know, to die is to be gained. And so just moving from this physical life into the next one, the next life with the Lord, that's, that's really not that bad, see? So follow me here. Death, that is the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, that's harmful. According to Paul, that's the sting of death. Where sin is pardoned, death doesn't have a sting. Does that make sense? But it's quite another matter where sin has not been dealt with. There, death is an antagonist, and it has power. It has power to draw souls to hell, see? The sting of death, the sting is not in death, it's in sin. And sin, or the sting, has an unexpected ally. And this is where Paul wants you to point your attention there for a minute. The sting of death is sin. And then he says, and the power of sin is the law. What's that mean? Well, Paul explains it really well in Romans 7, 9. In just a minute, I'm going to have you turn to Romans 7, verse 21, so you can begin to turn there if you want. Hold your finger here. But Romans 7, 9 says this. And this is a review for those who were with us for our Roman study. You've seen this, and we looked at it very in-depth. We won't do that again today. Just, uh, you can get the, as, because we've studied 1 Corinthians 15 so carefully, you'll see what we're talking about here. Paul says this in verse 9. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. In other words, before the law, Paul says, I was alive. I did, there was no law there to say sin is sin. And so it's a hypothetical situation. Paul's explaining how it works. Okay, verse 10, and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. In other words, God said, this is my law, it's good, keep it. It's gonna, it'll be life. But Paul says it resulted in death for me. Verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Verse 12, so then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And then Paul says, no way. May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So, here's the deal. Even though the law was to result in life for those who kept it, nobody was able to keep it. So here's God's law. Keep this commandments and you'll live. 
and nobody's able to keep the commandments. So it shows sin to be utterly sinful. The commandments just come and just highlight sin. It's just how bad it really is. But it's quite unable to bring people to salvation. So someone had to come and keep it. And Romans 10.4 tells us who? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So God's law sets up a standard we ought to reach, but we never can. So Paul, it becomes, so according to Paul, it becomes sin stronghold. So this is a, this is a law we can't overcome. And it just highlights our sin, and, we, and law can't bring about salvation, so it just becomes this illustration of just how bad we really are. See? It shows us to be sinners and condemns every one of us. So, resurrection triumph principle number eight is this. Wherever there is sin, death can give a fatal blow. And the law has made sin clear. But wherever sin has been paid for, Forgiven and removed, death doesn't have a sting. That's Paul's point. See? You understand? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So death by itself is not a problem. Unmanaged sin and death is a huge problem. So mark this. We say, on behalf of a believer, there is no sting in death. Because the sting of death is sin, and sin, in the case of a Christian has been removed. That's why Paul can say, happily, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Why? Because there's no sting in death. Sting was plunged into Christ at the cross, and he overcame it. And if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, the sting of death has been removed from you. So there's no, there's no problem with death at that point. And Christ fulfilled the law completely. So everything was taken care of for you. So all death can do then, if you keep the illustration of an insect, is just buzz around and scare you a little bit. For the reasons we mentioned before. And you know, if a hornet's flying around, you don't know if it's going to sting you or not, but you're still dodging it, right? And so that's the idea, and I think that you understand that. It can't sting you, though, and that's what you mostly need to understand, and that's the thing that Paul wants to make sure by the Holy Spirit you have as part of the arsenal of your security in Christ. The sting of death is sin, and if you've repented and placed your trust in Jesus, Jesus bore all your sin and settled the debt for all of it, and he forgave it. He already took the sting. Now look at Romans 7.22 in your copy of God's Word. If you would. <coughs> I'll leave that up there. Romans 7.22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That's the real me. That's the one that's clothed in corruption right now. That's the one that's clothed in mortality. The redeemed me sees the law of God and desires to obey it. And we understand that, don't we? Even the redeemed, even redeemed people, we see the law of God, we desire to obey it. For the first time, we're able to obey it because the Holy Spirit is there to help us, okay? Verse 23, here's the reality of it, though. But I see a different law in the members of my body. That's corruption, right? That's the part of you that's mortal, liable for death, liable to death, does the deeds of death. Paul says, listen, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. It's exactly what I want to do. It's exactly right, and I want to obey it. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So where is sin waging war? In my flesh. Right? It's not in the new you. Right? It's not your soul. It's in your flesh. Sin waged war in your flesh. How many understand that? You understand that, right? I mean, that's when you're doing battle, 
When you do a battle with your thought life, when you do a battle with the flesh and habits that you've got, that's the battle. That's where it is. Flesh has appetites. You used to feed them when you were, un, when you were unredeemed. Now you're redeemed. Still has the appetites. So we live in this corruption. We live in this mortality. And we're looking for that transformation. See? Verse 24. Wretched man that I am. How many understand that statement? Sure. That's Paul. That's Paul understanding his own this, this dichotomy that exists now with this new you on the inside, still clothed in flesh. See? Wretched man that I am. How many of you say, I mean, I've said that over and over to myself. Wretched, I am such a wretched man. Sometimes I get to the end of the day, and the only person who knows I'm saved is Christ and me. Because everybody I bumped into didn't know, and there'd be no way for them to know. Right? We understand that. There's a struggle going on. It is real. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? And isn't that precisely the day we're talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50? Right? The transformation. That's who's going to set you free. That's when it's going to happen. See? Thanks be to God. Look at verse 25. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And then this marvelous reminder that in spite of the constant battle being waged in the corrupted flesh, Jesus has already satisfied the law for all who believe. See? He's taken the victory away from death. He's taken the sting out of death. So the Holy Spirit can categorically tell us this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans. Therefore, say it with me, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you're so good? No, because you're wretched, just like I am. And I'm clothed in mortality and corruption. Why is there no condemnation? Because Christ took the sting of death. Because Christ took the victory of death away when he rose from the grave. And now you are free because you've placed your hope and your trust in him. Do you see? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death, where the power really is. You see? So for the believer, there's no sin, there's no sting, but as we notice in Romans 7, it doesn't mean that you don't commit sins as a Christian, you do. It simply means that they're already covered. They're already covered. They're covered. Don't live in false guilt, beloved. Your sins are covered. The sting has been taken for those who believe in Christ. See? They're forgiven. They're paid for. Death already scored what it thought was a permanent victory for your sin. And who did it kill? Christ. But who didn't stay in the grave? Christ. And no doubt Satan was thinking about all the others that would be killed now that Christ was dead. But Christ was raised and he conquered the grave. So that reversed death for everybody who believes. And it's all done. See. Now, that's important to know. If you're not a believer, because the same principle is at work in you. And if you think you can play a game, and on that, on that uh, day, you know, um, there's arrangements that will be different from you, for you, or whatever. Keep in mind, beloved, if you're not a believer, there's sin in your life. And you've given death, catch this, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you have given death the right to sting you with a fatal blow. If your sin has not been dealt with, You've given death the right to sting you with a fatal blow. 
So whether you believe it or not, whether you've read it or not, the law of God is the standard that reveals the sin, and sin is the thing that gives death its sting. And just in case you're thinking, you know, you haven't been that bad and you're no criminal, and if I've heard that from people I've witnessed to once, I've heard it a hundred times. Well, I'm no criminal. I mean, I'm not that bad a person. You've heard that, right? I mean, that's, that's the normal reaction. Well, what kind of person do you think I am? I mean, I've never murdered anybody. I mean, I don't steal from anybody. I mean, you know. Listen. Even, keep this in mind, even the smallest sin gives the sting to death. Okay? The most, if you will, seemingly inconsequential sin that's unforgiven, that's unaccounted for, unrepented of in the life of an unbeliever is enough to cause a fatal blow. But the promise to the believer is that the sting of death is gone and death itself is swallowed up forever for the one who places their trust in the resurrected one. And that is an important point to ponder and to praise the Lord for, right? And so Paul does just that. And he answers the same question that he asked in Romans 7.24. He says, who's going to set me free from the body of this death? And the answer that was given in Romans 7.25 is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he says, thank you to the Lord because he's going to be delivered from the body of death. And so in 1 Corinthians 15.55, he mocks death in the face of overwhelming victory of Christ's resurrection. And then he asks two rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions. So, oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? And then he answers exactly the same way as he did in Romans chapter 7. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? The same answer to this daily sin problem we have and delivering us from the body of death, which will occur at this transformation when the trumpet sounds, is the same thanksgiving that Paul's talking about here. Hey, death, where's your power? You don't have any. Hey, death, where's your sting? It's all gone. Why? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That victory is ours. So instead of death having a victory, instead of death having a sting, God in his grace gives it to us through Jesus. And that gives is the form of the verb uh, didomi, present active particle, participle, rather. So resurrection triumph principle number nine, right there. We know that this victory will be on display at the resurrection. But here's the thing. Present active participle gives us the idea that we're actually experiencing that victory now. And you can understand that, can't you? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. We know this victory will be on display at the resurrection without a doubt. But there is a sense in which we are participating in the victory. Now, catch this. He has replaced the reign of sin with that of grace. And you rejoice in that, and that's part of your victory even now. You understand your forgiveness, and you understand the grace you live in. You understand that your sin has been pardoned already, and you answer for it no more. And it's all been nailed to the cross, according to Colossians. And everything that was against you, and every article that was, that was listed out of everything that you ever done, when you placed your hope and faith in Christ, it got nailed to the cross and taken care of on the cross, see? And then Paul illustrates that present victory principle in Romans 5.21, and he says this. As sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the thing. In other words, the righteousness that's available to us through grace is a daily example of the victory Christ had over sin and its sting. In other words, as you see victory in your own life, as you go through your life and you start having some victory over these things that have plagued you all along, and you start seeing some victory over your thought life, and you start seeing some fruit of the Spirit being born in your life, as that is happening, you are experiencing part of the victory that's completely yours at the transformation. Where it no longer has any power over you at all, and it's 
proclaim to everyone sting of death and the victory of death is all God. And you're not trapped in this wretched body anymore. It's going to be transformed into this glorious new body that resembles Christ. Isn't that great? So the righteousness available to us through grace is a daily example of the victory Christ had over sin and death. That's why Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us right now, see, who gives us right now victory. Of course, a future victory, he just got through talking about it, but you have some of it right now. Now, in light of that, how does the Paul want the church to respond? And with this, we're, we're stopping, okay? Really four things. You can just copy them down quickly. Be steadfast. It's the verb geneste and the adjective hedreos. The verb is present, middle, imperative. And steadfast is a derivative of the word sit. So here's what you're supposed to do. This is a command for Paul to sit here, present, middle. You act on this truth that you have and sit right here in the middle of this understanding of who you are in Christ and the victory that belongs to you. See, He wants the church to be stable, in other words. Stay right in this spot. This is the place where you understand your victory. Don't move right or left from this. See, and he's going to say that in just a second. The matter is settled. See, be steadfast. Because of, so he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Therefore, in light of everything that we just talked about, in light of all the victory, as we understand the gospel and, and how it washes out through all of life, understand this final victory of yours is set right there in the victory that's Christ's. So stay right there. Be immovable. Amatakinetoi. And kinetoi is the verb for where we get our word kinetic. And here it is with a negative particle. So it just means don't move. Don't move. Stay right here and don't go back and forth. And remember, he's talking to a congregation coming out of paganism in this little sea of Christianity right in the middle of Corinth. And they've got all kinds of ideas about what is and what is not true. And the main thing was, hey, dead people don't rise. That was the whole problem that Paul had to address as he began Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So he says, listen, don't move, be steadfast right here, sit here, and don't move right or left. He's already kind of undermined all of that idea that dead people don't rise, because if dead people don't rise, Christ isn't. And Christ doesn't rise, that's a big problem with everybody, but Christ is resurrected from the dead. And part of the proof of the gospel is that more than 500 people saw him at one time, and all the disciples saw him, and many are still alive, and all that stuff that we went through, see? So he says, listen, just stay right here. Christ did rise, and because Christ rose, all this is true. So don't move back and forth, see? They're prone to fickleness, they're prone to shifting without reason from one position to another. Paul's addressing this tendency with this passage. Get a firm grip, Paul says, on this truth. God's final plan for all people and all things, and you will not be so readily shaken. Then he says this, always abounding, parasuo. Should be the, that's a present active form, always abounding. So this is what you're to be doing, always abounding, because this is true, because you're to be steadfast, you stay right here, immovable in this spot, always abound. That's the standard existence of the believer who had this assurance. And the idea is overflowing, overabounding in the work of the kingdom. It's, it's something in large or wonderful measure. That's the idea of the, of, of the word. A flower going from bud to full bloom, it's used for that as well. That's uh, parasio. There should be nothing cramped. There should be nothing narrow, nothing restricted about the Christian's experience in the work of the kingdom. Because the resurrection is true. So what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does it apply to me? Paul says, listen, be steadfast, be immovable in these things I've taught you, and that should overflow in your work for the kingdom because you understand what the final result's going to be. And then he says this, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So understand the implication of this truth because the resurrection was all it means for God's final triumph and of the survival of the believers through death. Your toil, then, he says, 
You're laboring, and, and the idea of toil is laboring to the point of weariness, is not kenos, it's not empty. It's never thrown away. It's not something that's trash. Your labor stays with you. It's going to survive for eternity just like you will, see? It's a marvelous motivation for giving yourself away, see? Toil can be in vain. Now listen, toil can be in vain if it doesn't include the kingdom, okay? So you're, it's possible for you to be involved in, in toil, as we saw uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians 5. It's possible for you to be involved in toil and it not last for the kingdom. That's part of the whole laying on this, the, the, the foundation of Christ, okay? But the fact of the matter is, your toil is not in vain for the Lord. So be about those things, kingdom work, to the point of your, your weariness overflowing in the work of the Lord because the truth is there. So resurrection triumph principle number 10 is this. Christ's victory over sin and death brings us great security in the reality that, here it is, we are partners with our great God who will share the fruits of that victory with us at the end. You're partners. Adopted into his family. Part of the work of Christ. He's chosen to work through you. He's given you the mandate to do it to weariness. He's told you to abound in it. And he's given you the reason why. Because you have, you get to pass from death to life seamlessly. There's no stinger for you. There's no victory in death. Our work done in his name will never, ever be wasted since it was done in light of the reality of the eternal kingdom of God. See, that's the whole motivation. There's an eternal kingdom, and this is the one I labor for, see? This is why I come and, and teach Sunday school. This is why I teach a small group Bible study. This is why I come on Sunday night and teach people. This is why I go out and witness. This is why I do all these things. There's an eternal kingdom, and these things are never forgotten. And the Lord watches closely what his people do and says, listen, be faithful when I come. When I come, let me catch you doing these things. Why? Because they last, see? And when he does that whole test of the Bema Seed and all that stuff you did for the kingdom, that all lasts. That, that part of the house stays. See? And we can lose ourselves in the pettiness of a world that doesn't last, and we can invest our time, our talents, our resources, ourselves in things that do last. And that's Paul's emphasis here. That this final victory, this marvelous crescendo, if you will, to this excellent passage that talks all about the resurrection and how important it is. He comes here and just says, listen, because that's true, do these things I've told you to do. Because you inherit a kingdom that doesn't pass away and you don't either, do, be about these things. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It's such an encouragement to us, how it uh, strengthens us, it lifts our hearts up, makes us just rejoice and kind of resonate, if you will, uh, these marvelous praises. I know even today some here praised you right there at their seat for what you've done and so appropriate for us to respond to your word that way and it gives us joy it gives us marvelous peace from the anxiety of what the world uh, would like us to believe what it appears to be the case thank you father that you have established all these things that there is a future that there's a joy that comes later that's an, an eternal reward that we pass if we know your son is our savior we pass from uh, death to life in an instant we're transformed for a body made to last forever in joy with you enjoying all the things you've prepared for those who love you and father we're so grateful for that it just has though such huge impact on how we live now i think that's why paul uh, wrapped up with that father so that we would understand it's not just kind of rejoicing in the kingdom we should be kingdom-minded in fact if we're not kingdom-minded we're not going to be any good here 
But because we're kingdom-minded, Paul says, because you understand you inherit a kingdom that doesn't pass away, because the works that you do last for the kingdom, Lord, help us then to be motivated to do those things. Because we don't have any fear of the strength of death or the sting of death, because those things are true, help us to be re-motivated to do the things for the kingdom that last. Thank you for, as Isaiah said, your long-promised resurrection which will come to pass, perhaps in our lifetime. And Father, here's the thing. If we're thankful, help it overflow in what we do. We really show that we are by that. We pray this in the name of your Son. And all God's people said,